Oh, I, I don't I don't feel the same. Oh. I like I like Glenn Ford. I like Glenn Ford a lot. I'm I, yeah. I'm glad you do. Yeah. You know, this is sort of like a Jack Lemon thing, though, with you. It and is. I feel like I'm, I, I want to say to you, like, maybe you just haven't seen the right Glenn Ford. You haven't seen him in the right roles. I feel like I've seen him in so many movies. Did you ever see the one? I, I'm blanking on the title, but it's also with Jack Lemon. <laughs> Uh, it's Glenn Ford and Jack Lemmon. So Ryan's ba- nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I bet, I bet you haven't seen this one. It's no, a western. It's Cowboy. Cowboy. Yeah. Did you ever see Cowboy Marsh? Yeah, a long time. Ago. Yeah. I like that movie a lot, dude. Right. I like that well, that was one of the ones I used as an example of why I hate Jack Lemmon. But I think it's playing into the things I dislike about him as a part of the idea of his character in that, like this dork yeah. that thinks he could be a cowboy. Yeah. Yeah, that movie's okay. You know. Oh, I, I like that movie a lot. I mean, what do you got a problem with the big heat? You know, you got a problem with Jubal, three ten to Yuma. No, I don't have oh, problems some of the with the greatest these American films. Yeah. I think these he's in some of the great great movies. It's just he's never the reason they're great to me. I just tolerate sure. him. He doesn't uh, like those movies are great in He could do worse, of, you know. Yeah. Glenn Ford. Man, I think in the big heat, he he is one of the most like terrifying. He's unhinged. Yeah, he's so he's so good in that to me. But but I mean, like I I, I could see your point in the same way that I could see your point with Jack Lemon. I can see it. You know, I, I don't have to agree with it, but I I can see it. You know, I'm not looking at you like a crazy person, <laughs> but you know, like I love. I mean, fuck, dude, Mr. Roberts. Have you ever seen Mr. Roberts? Uh, no. The quote John Ford movie right. slash Robert Montgomery movie. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. That's a great movie. But that's... Gilda? Gilda? But that's not um, Jack Lemmon or Glenn Ford. Yeah, Jack Lemmon's in that. Oh, yeah. You haven't seen Mr. Roberts? No, I mean, I. oh, okay, no, I see him there on the list now. Yeah, I haven't seen it. <laughs> he's he's not the lead of Mr. Roberts. Yeah, but he's a huge, he's a pivotal part oh, of the okay, movie. Oh, okay, okay. Ensign Pulver, dude. They made a whole TV show about Ensign Pulver. Yeah, clearly, character. you haven't seen my mom's favorite movie, Vincent Minnelli's The Courtship of Eddie's Father. Oh, no, I can't. That's, oh, come on. Do you know who's in that, dude? Ron <laughs> Howard is Eddie, the titular Eddie, Eddie's father, Glenn Ford. Oh. Whoa. A little melodrama. We're just double barreling you with Glenn Ford and Jack Lemon movies right now. Your head must be spinning. <laughs> you know? Are you putting these all down on the list? No. <laughs> I bet not. I, I can tell. They're going in one ear, not the other. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. That's hot out there. That's we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders, and with me today, as always, are Eric Marsh and Andrew Stasulis. For those who don't know, our podcast is a weekly double feature conversation. I shouldn't have said our podcast. <laughs> For those who haven't maybe listened to us before, 
Our show is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us picks a topic for the week and then the other two pick a pair of films that are in reaction to that topic. And we've done it all. We interrogate the topic, we buck up against it, or we just, you know, pledge loyalty to it. And this week, it was my turn to pick a theme. And recently, we had done some episodes surrounding different emotions. We, we made it very broad. We did an episode on anger. We did an episode on paranoia. And I was thinking about some of the emotions I've been experiencing as of late. I've been a little uneasy. I've just had a lot going on in my life. And um, I was noticing that I was feeling a sense of fear about a lot of things that were on my plate, things kind of coming past me that I had to make decisions about, and also just had to parse and, and make sense of some surreality, right? In terms of how did I get here? How are all of these things happening? And that was sort of my jumping off point for the topic was just fear in all its manifestations, what that does to the mind, and what that does to how we see the world. And I gotta say, the two of you picked some films that have some distinct looks at fear that I think are also quite representative of the years they came out and the types of deep-seated fears that people may not have even realized that were active in their minds. So I had a lot of fun. I had seen both of these movies before. Uh, they're both films that I enjoy. And I think it'll be nice to to look at them specifically from that angle of, of pure fear. So, Marsh, you had the first of the, you had the earlier of the two films. So tell us about that one first. Yes. Well, I'll be honest. I, I couldn't even get past, like, the idea of movies with fear in the title. You know, when I was like trying to think of movies, <laughs> I just had a huge list of like great films that have the word fear in the title. And I didn't add too many more after that. I mean, you have uh, Fear by James Foley. You have Rossellini's Fear. You have Kurosawa's Fear, Fassbinder's Fear. Oh, my God, go down the line. And I couldn't get over that. So I was just looking at a list of films that had fear in the title. And... You know, a, a couple of sort of like confluences going on here. Uh, I've been going through the films of John Farrow, which means I have been experiencing Milan a lot recently. Um, so that was on my mind. Uh, Orson has been on my mind. And so I wanted to, you know, uh, in the spirit of, of Orson and I was just Return to the masters, you know? Feels good to return to the masters every now and again. And of course, I have the fear and shame of having brought the fourth Dr. Mabuza film to the podcast and never a Fritz Lang film. So uh, that led me to where we are today. Ministry of Fear, directed by Fritz Lang from 1944. Uh, this is a wartime propaganda film, a wartime espionage film based on a novel by Graham Greene. It stars Ray Milland as Stephen Neal, a man who in the opening is in a mental asylum. And he is released only to uh, find himself in a very strange and unnerving world. And not just because it's uh, London during the Blitz, 
but because his reality seems to be sort of breaking down. And this begins when he visits a uh, village fete, a sort of outdoor uh, charity festival that's going on uh, in this small town in England for the Mothers of Free Nations Charity. Uh, and while he's at this, I'm not going to, you know, again, there's so many twists and turns. I'm not going to get lost here. Uh, yeah. I'm just going to say that. It's one of those overly plotted films for 80-some minutes. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's, <laughs> it's crazy. But, you know, he goes to essentially this fairground and, and sort of like calling back to the Weimar films where the fairground is like a, a very disturbing, fucked up place full of darkness uh, via a fortune teller and a cake that I'm sure we'll talk a lot about, uh, he becomes sort of drawn into a conspiracy involving spies and Nazis and, and all that good stuff. It's a film that, you know, is, I guess, considered, you know, minor long by, by some people. Um, it's part of, you know, like a, a trio of films he did that were explicitly anti-fascist or anti-Nazi. Um, but of course, there were also uh, a lot of cooks in the kitchen, in particular uh, on Ministry of Fear. Uh, famously, uh, Graham Greene said it sucked, uh, and Fritz Lang also uh, said it sucked, much later in, in his life. Um, and I want to read you what Fritz Lang told Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, he said, I signed a 10-week contract, but when I came back here and saw what had been done with the script, I was terribly shocked, and I said, I want out of this contract. The agent said I couldn't. Maybe he was just too lazy. I don't know. Anyway, I had signed a contract, and I had to fulfill it. That's all. I saw it recently on television, where it was cut to pieces, and I fell asleep. <laughs> now, of course... Uh, you know, he can say that because he's Fritz Lang, but anyone who watches this movie will notice uh, that it is characteristically long and a film that, for me, uh, evokes spies from 1929 and Dr. Mabuza, uh, his classic sort of crime espionage films of the silent era. I think it's got that spirit. I think it's uh, just a wonderfully constructed film. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it. But it's, you know, it's, it's Fritz Lang. It's full of fear and paranoia and confusion and guilt uh, and all that good stuff that uh, are sort of preoccupations of his. And I got to say, you know, uh, I'm one of those sickos who like basically prefers the, the American period of Lang. Uh, over the silent period, not to disparage the silent period, but uh, there's something that's just endlessly fascinating about him in Hollywood. I mean, he made 23 films there, uh, and they're often very threadbare or very cheap or very weird, but uh, he's always coming through with his uh, crazy visual design and, and just, again, all those preoccupations I mentioned. Uh, fear being a big one, and like Ryan said, yes, uh, this is a time of fear. This is the time of the, the Second World War. Uh, there's fear everywhere. There's fear around every corner. Um, and that's uh, the feeling that you get, certainly. So yeah, that's Ministry of Fear from 1944. Thank you. Yeah, I think I'm also one of those sickos that maybe it's not a preference, but I do really like, uh, even after his American period, his 
uh, return to... <laughs> the crazy return. Yeah, the crazy return to German language cinema and especially his uh, bizarre, haunting, and problematic Indian epic. Uh, yes. Very perplexing late career works, but fascinating nonetheless. Andy, tell us about the film that you brought. So I um, was trying hard not to go into... Um, pure horror territory. I, I was trying to be very conscious of that. Maybe I drifted sort of towards it a little bit with my ultimate pick, but I would say that that to me, I don't consider the film that I chose to be a uh, an outright horror film. I consider it to be a, a thriller more than anything, and, and certainly a violent one, but ultimately for me, more a psychological um, bit of terror. I think that the psychological element at play in the movie that I chose, to me, far, um, far outclasses the the pure, um, I guess you could say, kind of like physical horror or slasher element that that people have. Uh, ascribed to this film that's certainly kind of there but I think there's a lot more going going with it than than that um so yeah I, I kind of told Marsh I'm trying to go in the the thriller territory the idea of a, of a human being being um, you know a human being pushed to their their absolute limits by a a, a terrifying situation and I came very quickly to to my ultimate pick, um, especially when Marsh confirmed that he had not seen it. Really, uh, I knew I, it was a huge blind spot. Don't for you me. have even, the VHS? Yes, I yeah. own, yes. Borge gave me his. It's like one of those big. It has like a big case. You yeah, know, one of those VHSs, and it's beautiful. But I have never watched it. It's so funny. I like associate <laughs> this movie. With your place, because I see yes. it all the time, and for a while it wasn't available in HD, so I like had skipped it for a long time. Anyways, I, I'm interrupting you, Andy. Continue with your. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's it's a remarkable, you know, um, uh, oversight, right? Yeah. So I figured, fuck. Well, we gotta <laughs> we gotta sort this out. I I had known you had seen it. I love I, it. I, yeah. I, maybe we'd talked about it before, but but I'd certainly like you know seen you you rated on Letterboxd and. And I'm a huge fan of it. And it's a film that, you know, um, I I have seen differently over the years. And I think you have kind of alluded to, you know, a certain reading of this film that I think makes it so, so compelling and so much more interesting than than probably even the screenwriter intended. And, you know, maybe we're, we're getting kind of stuck in the mud here already. We certainly have a lot to pick apart. So I should just introduce the film. And that is The Hitcher from 1986, directed by Robert Harmon. Uh, this film stars... Uh, it's a weird way to put it, but this film stars C. Thomas Howell as <laughs> Jim Halsey. And Jim is just a total dork. He's a dork who is on his way out west. He is, we learn very quickly, from the fair city of Chicago, Illinois. And he has signed up to, to do a drive away thing. This is such a 
a, a lost, I think, uh, think, think for the past. Pre-internet concept. Yeah, pre-internet concept. So he has signed up with a car delivery service, and his job is to take a car from Chicago that someone has purchased out west and drive it across country for them. And it's a good way, I think, if you are trying to get across country to just get yourself a set of wheels. And that's where we find Jim at the opening of this film, heading out west on the open road. And one night, as he's sort of like struggling to stay awake on this long cross-country marathon drive, uh, he nearly falls asleep at the wheel. He's, he's drifting in and out as the film opens, which is this very like cool kind of dreamy sequence on on the road in the rain and 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 right after he has a sort of near miss he kind of he has this sort of thing where he's like fuck i gotta stay awake and and as he's beginning to drive back down that road he notices in the rain some guy with his thumb out a hitchhiker and in his own mind he thinks hey you know i'll pick this guy up and maybe you know he'll just help keep me awake i'll have somebody to chat to you know how bad could this possibly be well as bad as it gets (laughs) yeah poor jim picks up rutger hauer who informs him that his name is john Rider, <laughs> and uh, almost immediately, yeah. alias John Ryder. Yeah, almost immediately, Rutger Hauer basically uh, spooks Jim in a very bad way, and and more or less intimates that he has brutally murdered uh, the previous. Uh, car owner that he was riding with, and Jim is very, very upset, and uh, quickly tries to figure out a way to get out of this 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 potentially deadly situation, and, and he's able to dump him. However, this begins Jim's nightmare. It doesn't end Jim's nightmare, as John Ryder, uh, throughout the rest of the film, seems to materialize out of thin air constantly at every turn, uh, more or less just toying with Jim Halsey and ruining his life in every way possible and and also like murdering i think like 20 fucking people throughout the course of the movie i mean there's a big body count in this film it gets uh, increasingly more and more crazy uh, bizarre and deranged as the film builds to its it's very 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 um uh, brutal and bleak and climactic Finish, uh, which we will certainly be picking apart today. But you know, I mean, I gotta say, um, and I don't want to get too too stuck in uh, in this intro into kind of analyzing what I think is you know really made this film. I think um, something far. It's elevated this film far beyond what its original intentions probably were. But it is also just, I think, one of the great portraits of like a a single person being. Uh, completely pushed to the limits of of uh, uh, like a mental breakdown due to fear and paranoia of something pursuing them haunting them and and yeah um trying to destroy their 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 sanity so yeah uh rucker howard fucking rocks in this movie when does rucker howard not rock um, and yeah, um, I think we're going to have a lot to pick apart with this movie today. That is The Hitcher from 1986. Thank you. Thank you both. Yeah, the 
specific type of fear that's depicted in the Hitcher really hit this go around. The first time I saw it too, I remember actually being afraid of the film, which doesn't typically happen when I'm a horror hound and I love horror films, but it's not often that I'm legitimately unsettled and concerned, you know? And and that is something I still feel with The Hitcher. I think it has like this real raw energy of the sort of senselessness of why is all of this happening? Why are these these things that are plaguing me just chasing me around? And I guess broadly thinking about both of these films and their depictions of fear, I think one thing that can, can really link them is the way that circumstances can play upon your fears and then also really fuck with your sense of reality. And I think that that's something both of these films do really well. In the case of Ministry of Fear, of course, it does primarily inspire paranoia, but that is very heavily linked with fear. But throughout the film, you can feel that fear creeping into Ray Milland as so many systems are at play and so many suspicious things just keep happening right in front of his eyes. And it feels as though he's being thrown into a world that he has just no control over. That is if the systems of logic he's used to are completely deteriorating, everything's suspicious, and you have reason to be afraid of everything. And similarly with the Hitcher, we have a protagonist that is being... (laughs) endlessly pursued and thrown into insane scenarios that feel too perfect to just be happenstance. There are so many times where he's constantly framed for wrongdoings that it feels as though this was something Rutger Hauer's character had planned for months, as if it's all (laughs) elaborate theater, that it all just works out so perfectly. He shows up at the exact right moment every time to stoke those flames of fear, even when they're starting to dwindle down to embers inside of you, if you think you might like temporarily be safe or at least sanctioned off a little bit from it. So I think that just looking, taking a step back and looking at both of them, that that is something I see that they share. That when we're following these protagonists who are growing more and more frightened at what's happening around them, it also m- contributes to them calling into question what even is real, what is outside of my control, how can I even escape the system of reality that's in front of me. So in that sense, I, I thought it was a very interesting double feature that synced up in a way I wasn't expecting when I saw you had, had picked them both. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think they, they, they do actually share like a lot in common, uh, when you, when you sort of put it in, in, in those terms, obviously they, they are, um, dealing with, I think different sort of avenues for, you know, what to be afraid of both the characters within the film and the the world outside of the film when the film was being made. You know, certain threats are are kind of looming uh, consciously and, and perhaps like subconsciously, I think, around both of these films. But yeah, one like, I think, very direct connection between the two is that we find characters who are in over their head and and essentially in that classic kind of like wrong man scenario that as much as there is this this threat from from the outside uh both of the central characters in these films are at times 
being perceived as the actual villain, the actual threat, and confronted with, um, shall we say, like uh, uh, very menacing authority figures yeah. who should be there, their 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 safety, their security, but like that threat seems at times in both of the films, you know, from, from, from the cops or from the, the intelligence services or whoever, you know, like they're at times, they take up way more space in the film than the actual like antagonists do the actual villains do, which is what's very, I think kind of, uh, cool about both of these movies. You know, it isn't just the Nazis, right? It isn't just, Rutger Hauer as this absolute psychopathic killer, it's that now our characters have to run from the cops. There's this whole element where they have to elude the authorities to extract themselves from this very dangerous and very scary situation they're they're in. Yeah, there's a moment in The Hitcher when these, like, you know, Texas deputies are just going to shoot him and kill him, you know? (laughs) Just, like, straight up. Uh, and if it wasn't for Jennifer Jason Lee, they would have. And she like knows them, and she's like, "What are you guys doing?" Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got the wrong man. But yeah, I think both films there's a there's a huge fear of like uh, sort of knowing something and nobody will believe you, right? And mm-hmm. that's part of the sort of like overall wrong man context. Um, I want to talk briefly about my experience because this was my first time seeing The Hitcher and I was very startled by uh, the vagueness of it all and the fact that like it keeps that vagueness you know from beginning to end Um, I was kind of baffled Uh, when the film ended, in in a sense, because at a certain point, I I get what, you know, probably people who didn't like it at the time, uh, is this supernatural? Is this real? Like, there's all these questions that are purposefully never addressed, Mm -hmm. you know, which makes it, in the end, much more unsettling, I think, uh, in in a certain way. Um, as much as I, yes, I love, uh, you know, 70s horror that is very explicitly in a social context or whatever, but, like, this, right, it is this kind of, like, I mean, he's not a death machine or whatever because, like, he's not trying to, like, kill him. He could, he could kill him if he wanted to. But just... Yeah, it's, again, there's so many gaps. That's all I'm saying, right? There's <laughs> yeah. there's gaps to fill in, and I think that's, like, part of why this film still is alive, because it can be read uh, in between these lines and in between these gaps uh, a lot of different ways, you know? And I was very much looking at it from, like, a road film uh, angle more than anything, mm-hmm. uh, because, of course he's doing like the route 66 like route basically you know chicago to california um also you know then going back in history i was thinking like this is like a you know such like a 70s 80s movie where it's like a manifest destiny gone wrong sort of situation where it's like the more the 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 farther west he goes see thomas howell uh, you know, the more darkness there is and the more sort of like violence uh, that there is and the more violence that he then perhaps will be taking part in, you know? So I don't know. I, again, I was just like, 
That's one way of looking at it, and there's a million others. Yeah, it, it really is an open text. You know, I, I think when I watched it the first time, something I was thinking about was thinking of the era and thinking about how the conversations were starting to change about picking up hitchhikers and why that was, you know, actually an extremely dangerous thing to do. And just the boom of serial killers in America, where, of course, so many of them would often just pick up hitchhikers. And then like the narrative was changing around that. And people were more conscious of like, oh, yeah, hitchhikers, like that's actually something we should all maybe be afraid of and i think that this <laughs> film paints a really funny portrait of this is the absolute worst case scenario you could possibly imagine for picking up a hitchhiker <laughs> because not only are there going to be countless bodies and this man will be pursuing you endlessly but he'll destroy things you love and then also make it seem as though you're the reason for all of it constantly convincing <laughs> convincing people of power that this is your fault entirely for seemingly no reason at all but the fact that it's kind of fun to do you know yeah yeah <laughs> yeah the, uh, i mean again yeah i think that's that's why this movie is just so i think for people who who can get on its level like it is just this really kind of like haunting haunting piece or haunting text because again it's like mar said it's like why why is any of this happening and <laughs> and and there's no discernible rhyme or reason i mean again we can project onto it what we like and and that's the fun of it you know ebert famously like just yeah. fucking zero stars zero stars for this movie really and it oh is, my god he called it he dude he called it diseased and corrupted yeah <laughs> Dude, yeah, a a vicious Ebert takedown. Oh my God, pulling it up now. I'm gonna passively yeah. look at it. <laughs> Zero stars from from good old Roger. Uh, yeah, and Cisco hated it too for whatever that's fucking worth. But right. like, yeah, they hated it. And and you know, again, one of the things that Ebert cites in it is you know he he basically says, well, okay, sure, I guess there's a uh, this is an allegory. It's got an allegorical content or whatever. But but of evil, so who cares? And it's like, you're missing the fucking, you're missing the read here. And he certainly has missed the read uh, at various points um, in his illustrious career. But, but this one, yeah, Roger was not, was not game for it at all. And, and that's certainly like his, his loss because, you know, over the years, even my reading of the film changed based on encountering what others have have sort of projected on to the film. And, and you know, I think one of the, the most obvious um, um, reads or, or I guess shifts that, 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 you know, is out there, certainly for people, you know, when I first watched it, I just was like, okay, yeah, this is just like a good, it's a good ride. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's a fun little journey. And, and, and I was like riveted by, by it, by its insanity, by its, its nihilism. But then I was talking to uh, a friend who is like a, you know, like you, a, a, a horror hound, you know, someone who's very into horror films. And she said to me like, well, you know, it's, it's, it certainly was a very controversial film, uh, you know, because of the whole gay thing. And I was like, wait, what? I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, you know, you know, people um, attacked it for being uh, a movie about the AIDS crisis and about gay panic and, and homophobia. And I was like, 
what did I miss? Like, what did I miss? You know? And then like, I looked into it more and like, there is a whole bunch of scholarship in queer film studies. You know, there's a, there's a, there is like an ardent following within queer film studies of seeing this film allegorically as this sort of, yes, movie about like in reaction to uh, gay panic of the time of the eighties and the, 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 that crisis and reading the relationship between the two of them as this sort of queer coded sexual uh, attraction, particularly with Rutger Hauer's character. Did you ever come across any of this? No, like, not at all. Is his Rutger Hauer the disease itself? Well, so one of the readings, right, is, you know, and again, this is like, it's a movie that allows projection. And, and you know, one of the readings of it has become that there's this idea of, you know, picking up another man, right? Picking up a random a random uh, person for, a, for a, a sexual fling. And, um, you know, when... Uh, C. Thomas Howell's character, Jim Halsey, first picks up Rutger Hauer. He opens the car door and he says to him, like, My mother told me never to do this. You know, there's this element, mm. you know, and, and some of his lines, again, of course, have been read certain ways when you almost get this sort of, yes, open text allegorical thing that, that, that you've been looking for. He also grabs his crotch in like the first five minutes as well. Yes. Know? So, I mean, there, there is a, like a lot of text elements to it, right? The guy on the side of the road calls them sweethearts. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And there are other like insinuations, however vague that they are. Yeah. You know? He, he grabs his leg uh, at a certain point. He's got his switchblade and he like shoves it against his dick, you know? And, yeah. and, there are these very charged moments. And again, it goes back to this question of like, okay, but why, as Mar said, like he could kill this dude at any time. He's killed so many other people in the film, but not only is he not killing uh, C. Thomas Howell, you know, not only is he not killing Jim, at times he is helping him out. You know, he's helping him get out of situations that yes, obviously he created in his, in his insane design, but like he doesn't want this guy to die. He doesn't want to end his life. He wants something else. He wants a relationship with him, you know? And it's almost that C. Thomas Howell, you know, had his fling and then rejected him and threw him out and was like, hey man, that was just a one-time thing or whatever, you know? And now he's he's being pursued, you know? He's being stalked by this guy. And the goal isn't to kill him, it's to fuck him, right? It's to consume him. There's also something I noted that I didn't connect to this necessarily, but the film felt like it has like a sort of a gun fetish as well. And now I Mm. guess I'm sort of connecting it to the sort of phallic aspect of this because there's so much like stroking of pistols and like unloading and reloading and like close-ups and just handling 
these pistols like, like big meaty guns he, too. yeah big big ballsy magnums or whatever <laughs> you can tell me what they actually are andy but like yeah there's something to that as well because i you know I'm like these guys are really like handling these guns you know what i'm saying yeah it's guns true. and knives you know it's it's all very phallic yeah i mean there's that that one scene where, uh, you know, Jim has again, yet again, <laughs> yet again, uh, seemingly escaped the clutches of, of Rutger Hauer and, and finds himself at a, at a roadside diner. Uh, and, you know, he's just sort of sitting there, head in his hands, kind of taking a breather. And, and Rutger Hauer, again, just sort of materializes and sits down with him in this diner. And, and Jim, who now does have one of these, yes, big, meaty revolvers, points it at him under the table. And again, the gun is between his legs, and it's pointing directly at Rutger Hauer. <clears throat> How do you like Shitsville? Don't you move. You stay seated right where you are. Or I'll blow your brains through your ass. The gun is empty. Yeah? Yeah? You never checked it, did you? So help me, I'll blow you in half. All right. Squeeze the trigger. I will. Please. Oh, I will. Because you can sure as shit bet I'm going to squeeze mine. But now he's pointing his, like, erect finger right next to the gun. I mean, like, again, there's, there's so yeah. much that you can, of course, read into it if you so choose to and and by all means you should because we've said this is like an open text so my point being that like you know when i suddenly had my eyes opened to this reading that i was unaware like it made me love the film even more and you know uh hearing other people within like queer film studies sort of celebrating this movie as Yes, certainly like a flawed and imperfect uh, representation of, of certainly the idea of like gay lust, but one that is, again, if you open yourself up to it, like a hell of a lot of fun, like a very deranged sort of uh, death of the author kind of situation. Yeah, and I guess like, you know, no spoilers, obviously, but then it does sort of cap off with Rutger Hauer literally eviscerating... <laughs> the female love interest that yes. is involved um, in, in the journey. But I think I, I, I agree to an extent in the sense that the thing I love most about this movie is probably something that I, I that Ebert really seemed to have hated. And that's the, the ambiguity of it, the vagueness of it, the lack of clarity about, is this something supernatural? Where all, Where is all of this coming from? And my read of it always has been that it's one of the great films that just evokes what fear is in in the sense of personifying it. Because I think it's interesting how you noted, Andy, that there are times where Rutger Hauer puts him in terrible situations, but also gets him out of them. And I was thinking about how that is a way that fear can kind of play on the brain, where you find yourself trapped and in a panic, 
and in fear, but fear can also be a very motivating factor, and fear can open up avenues of escape that you hadn't realized were already there, in the sense of it's putting you in survival mode, and you're thinking of alternatives, and you're trying to, you know, <laughs> in his case, of course, a, an extremely high-tense situation by escaping the, the police and, and a serial killer. But in that sense, right, what does fear do to someone on a primal level? How does it affect their brain and how they deal with, like, any given situation that's in front of them? I under I wrote and underlined primal fear yeah, yeah, while, while watching uh, <laughs> the old Hitcher, you know. Mm-hmm. And I guess the fear is not quite as primal in Ministry of Fear. It, it it's like more like softly introduced. <laughs> it's been a few years since I've seen this film, but it was funny starting it again because I like couldn't remember what happened in it. You know, I I had remembered How seeing could you? it. I know, right? I had remembered seeing it, thinking it was fine. Like I I remembered not being particularly struck by it whatever was that probably like five six years ago that i saw it but it was funny starting it again and remembering moment for moment the first 20 minutes of the movie which i think is like very vivid and very literary and also quite fun in the way that it's all designed and kind of harkens back to long's german work in a sense just milan's arrival at the what is it like the fair, the local circus or whatever, the little festival? Well, they call yeah, they call them fates, F E T E. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, that's the fu- village fate. That's is is that how it's pronounced? That's one of those words I've only ever I read. Guess. Yeah, I've always in my head been like fetes, which I know is not how it's <laughs> said. But but yes, yeah, that that sequence is really really good. When he leaves the asylum, is just excited to be able to talk to people again because he feels as though he's been really isolated, which can also greatly contribute to fear and feeling as though he can find some release by while waiting for the train, going to see the folks at the at the fate. And that that whole sequence where he he votes uh, or he casts his ballot on on how heavy the cake is, he speaks with the soothsayer, you know, hearkening back to our fate yeah. episode. Well then let's get on with it. Now the past. This line that runs here, you have made one woman happy, is something wrong. No, nothing. Forget the past, just tell me the future. My instructions are these. What you want is the cake. You must give the weight as four pounds. Fifteen and a half ounces. Well, is it the right weight? That's immaterial. But don't I hear any more fortune? No. You can go now. Um, he's given the, the secret vote on, on how heavy the cake is, and he walks away with the prize. Like, beat for beat, that is a really enticing introduction and a great set of icons that send him on his path of fear. You know, the cake the fortune teller, the train ride, the fake blind man, like all those pieces, I think contribute really well to a, like just a vivid opening. I mean, I would, I would even move it up a, a little earlier in the film to me. I think like perhaps one of the more like compelling openings I've seen in a while. Cause I hadn't seen this film before. It had long been on my mm. list, but 
you know, we start with this just like ticking clock. Oh, yes. This just ticking clock over the credits. Here itself. And then (laughs) as we like pull back once the credits have ended, it is just a fucking like pitch dark room and Ray Meland is just sitting in darkness, staring at this clock ticking away on the wall, enshrouded completely in, in, in shadow. You know, I mean, he is pitch black, literally staring at a clock on the wall, ticking away. And it's like this doctor comes in, like has to flip on the lights and be like, oh, how you feeling? You know, and when we realize it's like an insane asylum, it's also like, so Ray Milan's nuts, right? So he's, he's a crazy guy, right? He's sitting there staring at a clock on the wall like a fucking automaton. And then it's just suddenly like, boy, I sure can't wait to meet a bunch of people. I'm going to go out there and just meet everybody. I mean, he's so like jazzed up to, to just get back out there in the world. And so for me, from the get-go, I'm, I'm already just questioning him. I'm questioning this man. I know that... Partly that's by design because they don't, of course, reveal at first why he was in there in the first place. You know, this this reveal of he's left in a, a mental institution and he's been in there for a few years. But from my perspective, I'm also like, so was he just sitting in this room for two years, just watching the clock until they were like, uh, <laughs> I guess you're cured. You can go, you know. He does say later that, you know, you see he wasn't crazy. It was just, you know, the circumstances. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, as both films will show us, you know, circumstances can uh, can drive anybody anywhere, yes. you know, and, and including crazy but but yeah, you know, from there he then goes to this very deranged carnival and and something that is very like Langian about it mm-hmm. is is all of the people staring at everyone's him. acting so weird everyone is off the vibe we've said this before this is folks peak the vibes are off at the fate, you know and he has just got this big smile on his face and yet is totally oblivious to the the sinister undertones of this whole this whole affair you know and and that expressionistic quality of of crowds and crowds being ultimately for long always something to be wary of to be unsure of to be to be distrusting of or is it mistrusting or distrusting distrusting about both about both. both yeah in either ways in either way folks crowds long says uh, avoid them at all costs, right? And like that whole thing with the cake, and and it's how Milan plays it, because he of course just thinks, "Wow, what a lucky guy I am! I won this cake." Not picking up on the fact that all of this is somehow code, a code phrase that he accidentally, you know, uttered to this would-be soothsayer and it's capped off by the arrival as he's walking away very excited to just tear into this cake he won to the guy who really should have won the cake the man that the cake was meant for who then the crowd did that part is the best when the crowd is something wait 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 uh (laughs) you you're actually you're you were wrong the number was (laughs) wrong And they're like, we figured out how we're going to get the cake away. We're going to come up with another number. But he then has to say, well, actually, you know, my first guess was closer than his. You know? 
Yeah, the fate sequence to me is is one of the great openings. And yeah, of course, including the clock scene, uh, just the way this movie builds. I, I was like floored by it, like, I don't know, 10 years ago when I saw it for the first time. Uh, and I and I still love it. Uh, the way he shoots that sort of fairground, right? What really struck me is there's uh, there's like a, a lateral tracking shot, a horizontal tracking shot as Milan is like, oh, you know, I'm str- hey, strolling through, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, and and as it's dollying, uh, there's just a figure. There's several figures that it's like in the foreground that it's dollying past, and then one of them is just completely in shadow, and it just dollies right by him, and you're just like, what? Yeah, what was that? You know, just these little things that make it all so uncanny. Um, and I love the fortune teller scene too. Just like the classic, you know, he walks in and she's like, sit down and cross my palm with silver. <laughs> it's the funniest <laughs> shit to me. It's so pulpy and, and stupid. And, and, and again, like, you know, giving it up to Milan, like he's so game for it. He's yeah. just got this big dumb smile on his face. Like he's here for the game. He's loving it, yeah. you know, especially when she pulls out a flashlight to to read the palm with, you know. Yeah. And from there, it goes immediately into another just totally uncanny sequence where Milland, with his cake, uh, gets on the train and then has an encounter with this fake blind man who is, of course, somehow part of this conspiracy. And I was cracking up when I was doing research because I found Tom Gunning talking about this film and he says, uh, it's one of Lang's most disturbing fake blind men. And I'm like, <laughs> how, many, how many fake blind men have been in Fritz Lang films? But it's such a him thing, right? Because appearances are never what they seem, you know? And so there's this like epic moment where this like, fake blind guy is like trying to get the cake away from Ray Milland and he's pretending to be blind. I mean, it's just like the whole thing is so bizarre. Yeah. And, the, and you know, just even the, the shots of them, like sharing the cake. Yes, They're so good. Yeah. Oh man. It's yeah. like so memorable. That's when, when I saw you picked the movie Marsh, the first image that flashed into my mind was right after Ray Milland, like finishes cutting the cake and handing it to the blind man. The, the like mess that he made on the seat cushion, like right next yeah. to him, the amount of yeah. cake that he like couldn't keep in the cake box. <laughs> that is just all over the seat like it's a fucking it's like a disaster it's a huge mess and it's just so funny because he's like hey you want some cake man these people really try to get take this cake off my hands <laughs> and he just like starts going at it and it's just like the carelessness of just getting it everywhere and then of course the blind man feeling the cake and trying to find what we later learn as a microfilm that's like inside it and just like tearing it apart with his fingers it's like a nice grotesque moment and then even like right after that after he bludgeons him in the head jumps off the train like runs out into the like bombing you know in the distance i love how throughout the whole film anytime we're outside it just looks so fake in a great way you know this is one of the great like studio bound looking movies intentionally or even if it wasn't just that it contributes like you mentioned that long was disappointed maybe he was not trying to design this in a way for extreme expressive effect but it's just in his blood so anytime even the beginning just everything outside looks so fake 
it looks like Macbeth, dude. Sure. Like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's so much fucking fog in this movie. I mean, it's it's thick with atmospheres. It's raining all the time. I mean, let me put it this way, I guess. Like Lottie Eisner talked about it, and she said basically uh, he didn't like the script because they hired a guy to like denazify it. Long wanted it to be more like Hangman Also Die, where he could like call out the Nazis, their mm-hmm. ideology could be brought up and be ridiculed. That's all absent from the film. It's sort of just vague. And yes, they name the Nazis, but they know they're not like in Hangman Also Die, they're like, let's go gas the workers, you know? Right, like they right, say right. shit like that uh, in that movie, you know? Um, but in this movie, he hated the script. This guy, Seton Miller, rewrote it. And because of a contractual thing, Long did not get to rewrite the script like he normally would. Uh, uncredited, not allowed. So he had to roll with it. He didn't like the cast. Otherwise, I think he absolutely does his thing 100% yeah. in terms of. <laughs> How it looks, how it feels, how we're moving through this gothic, dark, nightmare world. It's doors, thresholds, hallways, fake exteriors full of fog and nighttime raids. There's fucking uh, bells ringing in the background throughout the whole movie. There's air raid sirens. I mean, it's it's just thick with all his shit, all his details and atmosphere. And in know? the midst of all that, then we're still like very soon after treated to a seance. You know, you get oh. the you get the literal wartime gloom and then you get a gothic seance in like some upper class apartment. <laughs> I think it's one of his great sequences and it's calling back, I think, explicitly to Mabuza because there is a sort of. I don't remember if it's a seance, but there's a very bizarre sequence where all these people are sitting around a table. I think it is a seance. Anyway, one of his great scenes, you know, just like, oh, my God. First of all, it starts with like this doppelganger situation where the fortune teller is not the fortune teller. And then he's, yeah, drawn into this seance. Uh and it goes back to silent film aesthetics. We, it's just darkness. We're just seeing like a disembodied head of Dan Duria. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Under lit. Yeah. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. oh, it rocks so much. Yeah. I do. I and do. Then wanna, someone's murdered. I, I do want to just because we, we kind of, we, we kind of glossed over, I think, a very like important detail, which again leads me to like uh, throughout this film, I've been questioning the sanity of, of Ray Milland, even though we're not supposed to, we're supposed to trust him that he's, he's, cured now i'm all right now i want to come inside or whatever you know um but you know as we've described that that scene on the train that very bizarre strange sequence with the cake and and this blind man this fake blind man it climaxing with him bludgeoning him on the head like knocking him out grabbing the cake like a madman dashing off the train with it and ray milan like comes to in a heap in his train car and looks off to see this this you know nut job scurrying off with his cake into as you've described like a full on fucking like bombing raid from the Luftwaffe with a cake and his impulse Ray Milan's is to chase after him for the cake he thinks it's just a cake it, right 
He doesn't know that there's anything special about the cake other than that it's a cake that he won. And he's like, God damn it, that's my cake. And <laughs> chases after it. A man who is who has basically tried to murder him over cake and is now risking his own life as literal bombs are dropping. And Ray Milland is just stone-faced, like, I'm getting that fucking cake back. And dashes off after him. I mean, I mean what the hell is I don't that know. all about? Like, he, <laughs> no I way, mean, like, no he, way you would ever chase after a guy who did that to you well i think he's just wondering why it happened you know that's part of it but consider too the wartime context you know that's i think the great gag of the film is it's like all about this cake the one thing that like no one has in england right now you know they say multiple times there's eggs in it yeah because no one has (laughs) eggs you know no but come on man it doesn't make sense, but yes. <laughs> yeah, and then they get, like, bombed outside the Blackmore Munitions Factory, and this yeah. fake blind man gets blown to smithereens. <laughs> Over a fucking cake, as far as Ray Milland is concerned, you know? Yes, and boy, he's concerned. Uh, yeah. So concerned that he has to hire a, a private detective who is introduced as just chugging liquor in his office behind his closed door and smoking like an old-fashioned cigarette that looks like a giant blunt which i thought oh it's it's a it's a cigar in a fancy holder and and he's constantly ashing all over himself like this is i think one of my like uh now like favorite depictions of like the rumpled down on his heels you know pi that guy from uh, it's it's orthotics, orthotics private inquiry agency yeah. like that guy. I just fucking loved him, you know. Loved that guy. Yeah, just drunk, absolutely drunk. Yeah. Even the scenes between the scenes of action and terror are full of fear. That guy is is drinking because it's the fucking blitz. Like everyone's on edge. There's even like the most romantic scene of this movie is in the underground in the tube when they're all being bombed and he has like a moment with his lady, you know. And you're just like, this movie's fucked up. Like everyone is terrified. Yeah, everyone is like terrified, but but everyone is also like in a dream like state, you know. And and I I think that also again like speaks to the the overall atmosphere that that Lang is sort of reflecting on of of like boy like what a strange fucking world we live in you know when you consider again like the depths of like the expressionist era you know during Weimar like there wasn't even a goddamn war going on and now Lang is able to also reflect on us as humans our failures society as an inherently like yes insane place that Long is like, yeah, no, this is where love is happening in a fucking like in a in a subway tunnel while bombs are literally raining down on our heads. Like this is this is it. You know, this is everything we warned. This is everything we sort of warned, tried to warn folks about, you know, 15 years ago. Like, here we are. This is it. Now, one of the key things, too, is that there's this uh, psychologist uh, doctor involved uh, in the the, fu- the fake charity and the Nazi plot. The false doctor. The dude. false doctor. And the, the thing with that is that he supposedly, like, works for the ministry 
Ministry of Culture. Uh, and Are you, was or, it the, the Ministry of Home Security? Oh, yeah, the Ministry of Home Security, right? And so there, you know, I was thinking about Fritz Lang has predicted the future several times, yeah. you know, and certainly in his uh, 20s films, we know the kind of premonitions he was giving. Uh, and this film basically turned out to be true. I mean, there were Nazi spies in the British government, uh, and that was not at the time uh, something that was fact or, or known, of course. So uh, he called it again. And, you know, I, I kept thinking of like uh, when they, whenever they would say it, you know, the Ministry of Home Security, I just kept thinking about, about the Office of Homeland Security. Uh, yeah, me too. You know, the, the paranoia of, of the Bush era uh, and, and, and intelligence services run amok. And, and looking for spies and looking for terrorists now everywhere. So, yeah, Lung, always, always ahead of the game. <laughs> and it's, it's funny, too, because I feel like for me, the, the big contradiction between everything I love about Lung and also what I sometimes just have like a personal difficulty with is this film from that point on then, I mean, really the whole time, but from that point on is, is so plot heavy. Because it feels very literary in a sense, and again, it is an adaptation, but there's so much information <laughs> and so much twists and turns in terms of this big conspiracy, because that's like what he's best at, is like developing this big paranoid web that contributes to the overriding fear in his films, and that's something I have a much easier time reading <laughs> than when it's just happening in 80 minutes you know um but it's a quality i like about this movie it's just like from moment to moment there are new details that like make them change their perspective and attitude about how they're going to like approach the next situation it's just like constant getting lost in the spy ring yeah which is again i think the the you know in the interest of talking about our our double feature such a up up a stark contrast yeah. again with with the terror and the fear from uh, from the Hitcher, because as we've already sort of alluded to, like there's nothing there, you know. In all the times that uh, John Ryder, Rutger Hauer's character, just again like will materialize and show up, and he has many many like sit downs, like actual sit downs in the midst of this this terrifying killing spree, you know, he has sit downs with, with Jim, with, with C. Thomas Howell and C. Thomas Howell is just constantly like, dude, what do you want from me? Like, <laughs> what did I do? Like, I tried to help you out. I tried to give you a ride. Like, what is it? What's there? And, and you, you got to also like give it up to uh, Rutger Hauer, but he is, he's offering nothing. Nothing. I mean, Rutger Hauer is doing some 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 great like non acting in the midst of his, of course, like acting and just looking very menacing. But he just more often than not has like a blank look on his face. Sometimes, if anything, there's like a slight a slight kind of amused look on him. But but there's nothing there, you know? This is, sure, I guess you could say simply if you wanted to just like, yeah, have the most basic reading of it. Oh, he's just the personification of of pure evil. You know, almost like what Carpenter said about, about uh, uh, his, you know, Michael Myers. Right, the shape, you know? He's, he's just the shape. He's just this like 
this murderous Dutchman who's now just traveling around America doing whatever the hell he feels like. But, but it's, there's so many, like you said earlier gaps, there's just long spaces in this film where like nothing is happening. There's, there's not even like killing going on. It's just see Thomas Howell, like walking around a gas station being like, what happened to my life? Like what is going on here? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that's what fear can feel like, you know? That's why I that's just why I love this movie so much. It just has so much space for for depictions of fear, you know? Yeah. Even when he's with other people, I love that scene at the diner with Jennifer Jason Lee, and she's talking to him and he's just slipping. He's slowly slipping away and he's He's ending up in, having a full void stare. That's what Molly keeps describing from for me the past couple of weeks is is slipping into the void stare. And she starts, you know, Jennifer Jason Lee is saying like, oh, yeah, well, actually, my dad's from Mars. We're all from Mars. My whole family's from Mars. And he's just sitting there staring into the abyss, you know, just all the things of his fear, like collapsing in on him. Everything's building up. He's spiraling. And there's so many sequences of that. I mean, there's, that's with another character, but yeah, there's, there's breathing room of just a guy moving around being (laughs) desperately afraid. (laughs) Yeah, dude, there's so many great moments of, and I was like, maybe being a little unfair to see Thomas Howell, you know, we were reflecting off the pod of being like, what the fuck happened? Like Marsh was saying, like they tried to make him something and like nothing materialized for him ultimately as this, you know, big actor guy or whatever. But like just the way he will like suddenly like walk across like an empty gas station or like parking lot and and his head is on like as the film was on this just like swivel where he's just like constantly like whipping his head around looking being like where is he like i know he's around <laughs> here somewhere but he just again like just poof like out of thin air he's always kind of as you mentioned like showing up at like the perfect or perfect slash worst possible moment he's suddenly there you know well that's like the open nature of the film right it's it it is a film full of open spaces and we've talked about the the gaps in motivation or gaps in the narrative Mm -hmm. and that's like such a big part of it the way he looks around this guy could come from anywhere and because he's basically in the desert uh it's all Open and the film does a great job of mixing in these like epic landscape shots uh, to emphasize that, which is really interesting in light of the double feature because Long is creating his fear and paranoia in mostly closed spaces or like in trapped spaces. Um, you know, like the film ultimately, where is it heading? Ray Milland on a roof. You know, where he can't go anywhere except just, like, fire his pistol into the doorway at some Nazis. Just totally trapped, having run up a spiral staircase, you know? It's just such a... Both films have such a different sort of, like, spatial approach to fear. I mean, I guess in The Hitcher there is, in the car, a certain amount of, like, cramped, uh, you know, sort of elements. But by and large, yeah, it's scary because... Yeah. You just you see you can see everything. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, like Lang is often, I think, a master of presenting a certain kind of claustrophobia in his movies, and more often than not, to me, it's it's the the claustrophobia of 
of being in a city, in a town, in a, in a space where you're surrounded by threats, perceived and, and actual, you know, but, but, but Lang is, as I was saying earlier, you know, wary of, wary of, of crowds and, and being in these, these tight confined spaces and making you constantly feel sort of suffocated and choked by cities and people and all those sorts of things, you know, a mob suddenly, you know, besieging you in your jail cell, right? You know, like, God damn it. With fury. Right. But this film, The Hitcher, this is like an agoraphobic ultimate, you know, (laughs) (laughs) ultimate nightmare. Because, yeah, yeah, he's just spinning around, like, looking off at the horizon, being like, I do not feel safe. Like the safest he feels in the movie is when he is suddenly locked up in a jail cell, when he is confined to a tight enclosed space where he can't go anywhere. That's like one of the few moments where he actually like rests. He gets some sleep. Gets rest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the great cuts of the movie too, to him waking up too. And then this, uh, this is like the moment for me where I like settled into the vibe of this movie. And that's when he's in the jail cell and he like goes to sleep or it, it cuts and his cell is just opened. <laughs> and then he just lurks out slowly into the police station to find a, a massacre of all these police officers who are just have been blown away. Yeah, had their throats cut, and and, and there's just police dogs now wandering around, yeah. licking up the blood. Yeah, it's, yeah. Oh it's like God. it's yeah, it's very uncanny. You yeah, know? that's an incredible sequence. The dogs like licking the wounds of all their dead masters in, in, in the police station, and that sequence is great. This whole movie. I really, I think it just looks fantastic. I think it's got like great widescreen photography. I love when he walks into the office and behind him you can see a blood splattered wall out of focus that he hasn't realized yet and then like rounds the corner because he's hearing the dog just like sucking the wounds of like one of the dudes whose neck was just like eviscerated. And throughout though, I mean... All the sequences on the road, the way this movie captures both the natural light and then the way they also shoot night sequences is it's just super striking. It's like this really sharp and dynamic looking image that doesn't just feel like a typical, you know, something that was like shot on the highways of Western America during the era. Like this film feels as if it was like really carefully considered and shot. Uh, depending on the time of day, where they were, and how they were doing it. So apparently the director, I mean, I, I couldn't really find out a whole bunch about his like journey to becoming a filmmaker, because this was his debut feature. It was mm. the first film uh, for the director, Robert Harmon. It was also the first film for the screenwriter, Eric Red, who, you know, and again, this should should help visualize certain things or conceive of certain things for people who haven't seen The Hitcher but have seen another film he wrote that has a very similar, you know, road, uh, you know, road movie slash horror film kind of thing going on. Uh, Eric Red also wrote uh, Near Dark, 
uh, same screenwriter, right? And and you can kind of put those pieces together. Then when you oh, okay, right? You know, yeah. out on the open road, southwest, right? Just killers are lurking around everywhere. In that case, it is of course yes, explicitly supernatural. We're dealing with vampires, but anyway, um, I digress. Robert Harmon, I read prior to this, he had made a short film. Uh, that he was sort of trying, you know, specifically just trying to be like, let me make a feature. But his background was described as a photographer. And I think that makes a lot of sense when you think about the the compositions of this film, that, that it's clearly the eye of someone who has spent a lot of time composing stills, composing, you know, still photographs. Uh, so I think that, that yes, certainly speaks to its, its visual quality. And again, also that, that it isn't just like the plot or the story or the idea because they did remake this movie, uh, in the early two thousands, a disastrous remake with fucking Sean Bean that I, I think I started once and, and turned off because it doesn't look good. It doesn't look like this. There's too much going on. There aren't the gaps. There aren't the spaces. This is, for as loud and at times explosive as it can get, a very quiet film. It's a very quiet film that just suddenly erupts into like screeching horror and terror and and synthesizers. And synthesizers, oh yeah. Did you guys see who the cinematographer uh, of the hitcher is no, I actually didn't. This may uh, this may help. Uh, John Seal, who shot Mad Max Fury Road. Oh wow! Uh, but has like a really really rich career of shooting uh, for Peter Weir and you know Ron Howard, John Borman, like lots of really big movies. But this was early in his career. Um, did witness and the hitcher back to back. Those are two very handsome films. Oh yeah, I gotta say yeah. You know? Most definitely, most definitely. So, a lot of of talent there, yeah. You know, I think this time around, one of the things, though, that I was reflecting on was, like, and and I think it's, again, it, 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 it's perfect for what this film is, because it's, you know, the, the point is that, um... Rutger Hauer isn't constantly like there, but I just kept this time around being like, God, I want more of him. <laughs> like, wow, I want, yeah. like you just want him to keep showing back up because anytime he does, that's when the insanity like really like ramps up and things like boil over, you know, like at a certain point when, when Jim is now just in a high speed chase with Texas state police who are, are literally just trying to shoot him with shotguns, you know, they went this, pecking peck and pop mode on his car yeah full on just unloading buckshot into it they're not even trying to arrest him at this point the, the cops are literally just trying to fucking shoot uh see thomas Howe, just kill him outright and suddenly the truck that that rucker Hauer has you know commandeered from people he clearly murdered at an earlier point in the film his truck just comes like kind of whipping in as this this police helicopters chasing the C. Thomas Howell and these other cop cars are. And and you can see Rucker Howard kind of like checking out the chase. And then he just pulls out his revolver and just starts like emptying it into the, the police helicopter, you know, being like, this is cool, but I got my own thing I'm trying to work on with this guy. And this, yeah. this, this helicopter's kind of fucking things up and he just shoots down a fucking helicopter. I mean, some people like criticize the film for its... Like how it does then kind of like drift into these very like kind of 
over the top like car crashes and the helicopters falling stunt out heavy of the sky. Film. Yeah. You know, everyone compares the hitcher to Duel, and rightfully so, but I think a more apt comparison is figures in a landscape. You know, because that film really has like no explanation either. Uh in that way, just this nonstop menacing yeah. that's it that's the movie yeah. you know you're being hunted go yeah that's it it also made me think of a film that i really like that i saw for the first time this past year road games uh mm-hmm. with stacy keach which is oh, yeah. m- a much more psychological um disciple of hitchcock shit you know because it's like in that movie it's like is there a killer mm-hmm. you know versus this which is like yeah there's there's a killer. Here he is. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but in a way, though, they are they are similar. And just thinking of other sort of like road killer movies. I mean, there's there is a lot. Uh, even going back to like Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker. Yeah. I was thinking about that because mm-hmm. I've taught that in film history, and that's a classic. You know, post-war America, like don't let strangers into your car. Exactly. Films. If a guy's got a weird eye. Don't let him into your car, folks, because uh, he'll kill you. And that film, by the way, Ida Lupino's Hitchhiker has gay subtext as well between the two guys going on vacation. Oh, most you know? definitely. So, most definitely. It's a rich tradition. Yeah. Man, I had completely forgotten, though, and I saw The Hitcher rather recently, like within the last two years. I had forgotten how many cars are just wrecked in the back half of this movie because that's the thing I remembered it so much is just a body count um, but the fact that there is that big chase and he magically flips two police cars it's nuts and for they, no reason the amount of <laughs> rolls those cars endure it's insane this is an all time car flip movie yeah for sure mm-hmm. it made me like you know made me think of the I think at the time they had like broken the record for the amount of a car flipping in Casino Royale, the Daniel Craig one, where they like, I remember seeing the behind the scenes when they had loaded it with these uh, tanks of, I don't know, it was oxygen or something, but that propelled the car to break a world record for the amount of times it flipped, like in a single go. Wow. It's kind of a neat little Bond alert. Thing. Yeah, the Bonds, you know, at a certain point, it's all about just topping the previous one. Exactly. And, and by breaking the world record for most consecutive car flips, that's that's peak Bond shit yeah. right there. Rutger Hauer, probably one of the ultimate, like, should have been a Bond villain, guys. Oh, yes, definitely. Apparently, uh, Rutger Hauer was somewhat um, reluctant because uh, this was during his his you know his Hollywood period, um, uh, and was somewhat reluctant on taking this part because he was worried that he was being typecast as just you know the villain, uh, the the villain, which is very unlike his presence in in certainly you know Europe where he was often the hero, but when he came to Hollywood and and definitely as a result of like. Roy Batty and Blade Runner, it was like, oh, yeah, we need to get Rutger Hauer to play a villain. So he was sort of like, I don't know, I'm worried about being typecast. But I guess when he read the script, you know, he was sort of like, all right, well, this is a good one. If I'm going to stop playing villains consciously in Hollywood or saying no to them, 
like this is a good one for me to go out on and i think in part again yeah because it is just this kind of opportunity for him to to not even necessarily play it as just just like frothing at the mouth psycho but one that is impenetrable and very 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 compelling because of a sort of like emptiness a sort of hollowness to what he's doing um but one other thing i i had read was um that there were other actors who they had in mind for the part of the hitcher and one to me that like again in like a perfect kind of like fantasy scenario of being like i would definitely want to watch that film was Harry Dean Stanton that they had <laughs> they had thought of Harry Dean Stanton for the Hitcher because apparently the script he's too lovable he's described know, as yeah. very very gaunt but goddamn I would I he can would, be nasty it's true oh it's true. I would watch I would watch yeah. a, I mean there's a, a ton of people that would fit I was thinking like Dennis Hopper Warren Oates all would bring like a funny different energy to that role. It's a it's a neat role that would fit, I think, a lot of goofy character actors, for sure. I still can't get over when we started the film, Kyle said, see uh, Thomas Howell, isn't that Dexter? <laughs> <laughs> still cracking me up. Um, we were talking about the uh, sort of pyrotechnics of The Hitcher. Uh, Fritz Lang won't be outdone. He has some pyrotechnics of his own that he pulls out, uh, most notably uh, a suitcase, which is introduced very innocuously and then about six minutes later explodes <laughs> yeah. uh, in, in a hotel and almost kills uh, Carla and uh, Stephen, you know, as they're uh, you know, probing this Nazi plot. And of course, the other great gag slash, uh, I guess it's not exactly pyrotechnics, but uh, Dan Duria, who was supposedly shot in the head during the seance, uh, returns and he's a ta- and he's a tailor. And, you know, again, the whole thing's like Truman Show shit, like his whole manipulated reality. Uh, but then he confronts, you know, Ramelon confronts Dan Duria at the tailors. And it's one of my favorite sequences of the film and and just any noir in general uh danduria has these comically oversized scissors like they're gigantic uh and he comes over to Raymalon and and very pointedly uh, makes a phone call dialing with these gigantic <laughs> scissors uh and then on the phone like holding them threateningly out uh at him it's just so fucking funny i love it so much yeah you wish to see me, sir? There's no one I'd rather see. Oh, I don't understand. Excuse me one moment. Mr. Macklin, this is Travers and Brothwaite. Your suit was dispatched an hour ago, sir. I trust in time for your journey. And and subsequently we'll use those yeah. scissors. <laughs> yes. In unexpected ways. Yes, yeah, yeah. No spoilers, folks, but... We got some some pivotal scissor play. Man, I love when that suitcase blows up. That's such a funny yes. scene. Just opens it and immediately is like, oh, shit. <laughs> Just like dives across the room. Yeah. Dude, the practical <laughs> effects, like 
every piece of furniture like leaps off the ground <laughs> yeah. when the explosion happens. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, just delivering some books. Is that where they are afterwards, where they're, like, sifting through the wreckage? It's of that room, No, that's right? at the beginning. No, oh, no, no. Oh. They go back to the shack that was bombed at the beginning with the right. fake blind man. Another incredible thing where, uh, you know, we learn that the menacing figure in the bowler hat that's been dogging Ray Milland is actually the Scotland Yard inspector. You know, appearances yeah. are never what they seem. And then Ray Milan somehow convinces them to waste uh, an insane amount of police resources on his, like, you know, frantic recollections. Like, you got to understand the fake blind man in the cake out by Blackmore. There's got to be something there. We got to go back there. And they're just like, okay. And I'm like, dude, the, it's fucking World War II. Don't you guys have anything better to be doing? And they go all the way out back to the beginning of the film and they're like getting tools out and sifting through the dirt, you know? Like, yeah. man, they really invested a lot on on good faith uh, of there's this a, guy's account. There's an, off, there's an awesome little detail too that, that I was kind of laughing about where you know, as they're sifting through the dirt and, and he's kind of like, that... that you know, that looks like cake right there or whatever, you know, like, yes, the, the Scotland Yard inspector who's very suspect of this whole endeavor, like kind of sticks his finger in the dirt and then like, like kind of licks it a little bit, you know, like, yeah. does it taste cake. like cake? You know? yeah, it's just like, just tastes like, like real eggs. Dirt. Yeah, yeah, whatever, you know. It's awesome. Yep. Oh, man. We got it all. We got suits stitched up with microfilm. We got cake in the dirt. We got exploding suitcases. Uh, we got it all, folks. But again, I think you know with Lang, it's like like you said that Lang. There's 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 always. I, I, I oh man, I always say like Lang, and like I can just hear my German teacher Frau Bentley just Reinhold. That is not how we pronounce it. It's Lang. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like the Chicago in it, yeah. It's I know. Like sometimes it's so overwhelming. Yeah. Um, but you know, like you said, you know, uh, there's always more than meets the eye, and and to me, and this is my first viewing, so I'm I'm curious um, for 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 you two, like what you think. But again, as you mentioned, like this this inspector from Scotland Yard is at first presented to us as this kind of very menacing figure. Um, he, he's meant to make us very uneasy. He makes Ray Milan very uneasy. He is framed and shot and composed by Lang as a, as a bad guy, as a bad guy. And, and I couldn't help but, but sort of even in spite of the fact that at a certain point, you know, he does sort of get on the side of, of Ray Milland, uh, his demeanor and the the sort of very cold, calculating, methodical way he handles the turn of events. This this inspector from Scotland Yard and the 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 actual Ministry of Home Security that we go into, like I I don't think Lung is presenting it or him necessarily then as like good guys or as a good thing. And I couldn't help then but but sort of think that this is the Ministry of Fear of the title, the Ministry of Home Security, these rooms where guys like this 
are deciding people's fates and ordering assassinations and and would have no qualms with eliminating Ray Milland if they actually did perceive him as this threat, you know, that that this security state, that intelligence services, whether they be, you know, MI6 or the Gestapo are are sources of of paranoia or sources wow. of fear. And that's Graham Greene shit. I mean, watch The Quiet American. Like, that's what it's all about. And I think very pointedly, as Ray Milan is trapped on the roof at the end, firing, uh, he doesn't save the day. He doesn't get them. All of a sudden, these guys are just mowed down by people off screen, yeah. implied the cops or the intelligence yeah. services. We, we just, see the, the inspector, like, walk yeah. up with a pistol very dispassionately, yeah. you know, not like, yes, we saved the day. It's just another day on the job. Yeah. And it's, yeah, the fact that it's like just off this force off screen again, I think speaks to how he's sort of playing it. Like, yeah, there's no fucking good, good guy. I mean, obviously the Nazis are the worst. Right. Facts. <laughs> right. But I mean, obviously we will come on now. <laughs> Right. I mean, can you guys even, can you even like clear up for me? No. Uh, this, this, yeah. Um, what's up with like Carla? Like when they reveal at the end, it's sort of like, oh, my brother was the secret Nazi spy master boss. But it's like, I don't know if she knew the whole time or not. That's like very unclear to me. I didn't know anything about the movie. I mean, I knew of the movie and I'd meant to see it. So I had to like kind of read a little bit about it. And, and, and that is something that I read was again, Graham Greene, cynical motherfucker, like a big departure from the book. From my understanding, uh, was that in the book she does know. Yeah. And, and there is this ending that is a lot more Graham Greene where, it's kind of like, yeah, but I guess we're in love, so now we got to live with the fact that, you know, you were a part of this thing, and I killed somebody. Uh, and again, I think in the book, it is also, from what I read, it's much more explicit that he he did actually kill his wife. And in this, they make the distinction that she killed herself with his poison. He, he was like, I'm not going to do it. But in the book, he kills his wife without her being aware that that's what he's doing. It isn't a mercy killing. In his mind, it's a mercy killing, but she didn't, like, ask for it, right. you know? So it does have a much more, like, kind of bleak, I think, depiction of humanity in, in its ending. Paramount Pictures wasn't allowing that. No, no. This ends with them, like, embarking on, like, a honeymoon road trip where they're very excited for the future. And, yeah, and yeah it is just glossed over that... She was basically either just a big fucking idiot or like going along with this Nazi spy ring. Yeah, it makes me think of what Douglas Sirk said about the Hollywood happy ending. He called it an emergency exit. And this film has one of the great emergency exits. It ends 100%. on a cake joke. Yeah. They yeah. joke about the cake yeah. and it just ends and you're like, what? Yeah. Nazi thriller, what? Yeah, it literally <laughs> ends with her being like, and I want cake at our wedding. And him basically being like, why I oughta? You know? And then it's like the end. You know? Yeah, that, yeah. it is all, I think. Rear like projection. A, you know? yeah, like, yeah. yeah, all time like exit. Because that yeah. shot is less than a minute long. That final scene is just something that got thrown together 
very quickly in an afternoon. Long probably wasn't even there. You know, no, there's no way he shot that shit. Yeah. There's it doesn't no look way. like his shots in the rest yeah. of the movie. It looks like and a different movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we've discussed this about like Long's like Hollywood films before, you know, again, when you consider uh, is it it's it's fury, right? The way he intended for that movie oh, to actually God. end. Yeah. And then what the studio was like, no, no, here's how you're going to end it. And this totally tacked on kind of like more realistic quote happy ending that that he was forced to deliver you know for long and everything that he'd gone through in his life to this point this dude doesn't believe in fucking happy endings none of the expressionists believed in happy endings what was the happy ending for 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 the germans in 1918 there was no happy ending it just uh led to worse and worse and worse situations it just kept getting worse until you find yourselves in the apocalypse of fucking world war ii happy endings yes are are a total fantasy and and it is part of the 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 depths of like yes his his compromised hollywood period if you want to look at it that way and 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 something that he was always forced to do to shove those fucking things on there and and they always look like they do in this they always look like yes the b fucking unit came in because he was at this point just like you should sh- shoot whatever the fuck you want yeah and tack it on. a movie that already looks like every exterior scene is so fake than to have that which ramps up the artificiality like by 10. Yeah. And it's like the, the, the lighting is so different too. It's like, that seems like the only shot of the film it's like a where there's sun shining. Yeah. 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 A, a stark contrast with Jennifer Jason Lee being torn in half, uh, and us having to listen to all her entrails spill out on the dusty road. <laughs> oh, oh my God. God. I got nothing to say about it, just like, foul. Apparently, there was a lot of uh, hemming and hawing in the writing process and production of whether or not they should show it. And that was like a huge argument that was being had in the creation (laughs) of the film. And I'm just thinking, you don't need to show it. What are you thinking? Like, I don't know, And you know what's funny about that was that when they were shopping the script, when he was like shopping this script, Eric read and, and uh, trying to get, you know, producers to buy into it. That was always like one of the first notes on it was just like, you can't have this chick torn in half in a movie. Like, what are, you, are you nuts? Like, no, that that's that's a big no. Yeah. And then R. when R. yes, they Craig went into Zoller, production. Yeah. yeah, they were like, like you said, hemming and hawing, and and kind of saying like, okay, well, we we won't show it. Like, it it has to happen, you know, uh, for his character to then go do what he does at the very end of the film. So it, she has to die, and she has to die horribly, you know, and they had talked about other endings. But what's really funny is that even though they then were like, okay, well, well we won't show it, and the producers were like, don't show it, I read that then the producers reflected afterwards that they were like, we should have showed it. You know, we really should have shown her getting torn in <laughs> or whatever. Or at least like shoot it just in case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I think that was one of the things, again, that like confounded audiences for us. Like, as violent as this movie is, most of the violence is happening off screen and 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 right. certainly like his brutal murders i mean he murders like he he murders people on the side of the road he murders a whole family right. of fucking Which, and, children like, right we don't even see their bodies we just see our guy barf right right 
Right. Yeah. yeah. Like he walks up in the car. And so there were some people who were like, this is a slasher film without slashing, you know, like what the fuck is this movie? You know, it's like, it's chickening out. But again, to your point, I, I think the movie does speak to like the, the psychological element of fear, you know, like fear of the unknown fear of the unseen is so much more unsettling to us. Yeah. You know, we can only imagine off screen what Ryder has done. The police station. It looks like the 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 fucking aftermath of Terminator, you know, when he goes in and and wipes out an entire police station full of cops, but we don't see any of that. It happened while you were sleeping, right? While you were having the 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 sleep of babes or whatever. And he just like not only does he kill all the cops, but he leaves a gun out for C. Thomas Howell to pick up. Like, he'll pick up one of their guns. Like, he'll be thinking, I should now arm myself. But he, of course, also had the design to remove the bullets so that C. Thomas Howell would take the gun and then, in a confrontation, pull it on him and he could say, no bullets, dumbass, you know? Like, there is yeah. so much shit going off screen. He's such a busy little ant. He's a worker bee. He's like God. You, honestly, yeah. you could read this movie as, again, just a story of fate. It's God. He's controlling every step of this process. And yeah, man, I, I really can't believe I had forgotten that she was torn in half. When, when that scene was happening, I was like, oh yeah, how does she, how do they get her out of this? I can't remember. And then she gets torn in half. And I was like, oh God, I must have just repressed this. <laughs> yeah, and it's specifically too because you won't shoot him in the face. Now, this also leads me to my initial reading of the film because he does. Yes, this is his design, you know, like, so you have to wonder like to a certain extent. Yes. What is the point of this? And you know, the ending I think gives us a clue because he throughout the film, he's telling him like, kill me, you know, Rucker Howard is saying, kill me. Yeah. He literally says, stop me at a certain point. Right. When he's like, what do you want? He's like, I want you to stop me. Exactly. And so in the end, you know, he facilitates his own demise, which, of course, makes me think like, okay, well, maybe he was like, is some sort of cursed, you know, demon and he needs uh, someone to take his place. Yeah. You know, I sort of thought... Ultimately, the arc of the, the C. Thomas Howell character is that he becomes a murderer. Mm -hmm. He becomes a killer. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately, to me, what the project was, to take this just kid, this innocent kid this from dork. Chicago, this dork, and in 90 minutes, you've got him mowing a guy down on the side of the road. And yeah. the way he just lingers there, I'm thinking... He's just going to get in the truck and start doing what Rucker Howard did, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, that's the design, right? That's the design. Yeah. It's like, if this is just the beginning, you know, or, or a new cycle. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, when, like, you know, he pulls a lot of guns on cops, you know, and, and he fights cops. And, and even, in, again, in that crazy car chase sequence with Jennifer Jason Lee, when she kind of helps him get away, he tells her, shoot at them. Yeah. Like, fucking shoot at these guys. They're shooting at us. Shoot at the fucking cops. Shoot back. And she's like, I'm not going to do that. So he's like, well, then just shoot at the tires or whatever. But he literally tells her to, like, shoot back at the cops. And again, this is one of those things where I, I, I reflect on it. Again, you talk about happy endings. It's like, he still has a lot to answer for in spite of the fact that, like, yes, he certainly was the wrong guy. It doesn't excuse what he did. And that cop at the ending... 
that he, you know, finally pulls the gun on is like, look, I'm going back to kill him. Like that cop would be like, yeah, he went and murdered this guy who was in custody. It doesn't matter that he escaped. Yeah. They're not going to be like, well, he was supernatural, so we can't <laughs> hold him. You, know? right? like, <laughs> you can't just go kill a guy in police custody. You know, like, yeah, he's a fucking criminal by the end of the movie. Yeah. Sorry, sir. That's something I got to do. Yeah, I just gotta do this, you know? He told me I had to do this. Uh, fear eats the soul. It certainly as does. It certainly does. Yeah, we watched both of these characters have their souls eaten up a little bit, but at least one of them, regrettably, I guess, gets some cake in the end, at least. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, gets some cake. <laughs> for him, it's yeah. True. And, you know, yeah, for, for Long, this is the end of his uh, wartime activities, and he would pivot. Uh, much more into the uh, the film noir, uh, not that Ministry of Fear it couldn't also be classified that, of right. course. Uh, but we're talking Scar- Scarlet Street coming up, one of the best movies of all time. Danduria, no scissors, but even more menacing. He is and still that iconic bland. voice. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, he's like shockingly bland in Ministry of Fear, uh, and yet he's still such a dynamic presence. You know, yeah. always. Yeah. You know, also, uh, I, I recently, um, you know, only like a couple of years ago, got to see a great musical with him. And, you know, surprisingly, a, a, quite a nimble dancer. Sure. Very light on his feet. He's a slanky, skinny guy. I you know? know, yeah. <laughs> well, Ryan, these were our uh, picks for uh, fearful pictures. Uh, when you think about it, what comes to mind? I think I should provide a slight caveat, and I'm sure that you're probably going in this direction too. But, but again, going back to your initial, you know, thing, you 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 encouraged us to not necessarily just think of horror films, and I know that The Hitcher is kind of on the line, but I again don't consider it a horror film. So, so how about Portraits of Fear that that don't have anything to do specifically with the horror genre, the established horror genre. I, I don't have one prepared. Oh, dude, I fucked you up. I fucked you up. I like, I had forgotten. I had completely forgotten. And then I'm sitting here and I'm like, I mean, man, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Just the fact that half that movie is screaming, screaming in agony and fear. Uh, that movie's about fear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I shit the bed this week. Um, maybe at the top of next week's episode, I'll have a little more clear headed and I'll be able to, cause I really was thinking, I'm like, man, I wish I wanted to like have a comedy, you know, to, to say like, this is a great comedy about fear. A lot, a lot of great comedies about fear. I know. Fear I guess of sex, co- fear of commitment. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The, the yes. filmography of Woody Allen, yeah. you know, right. Albert Brooks. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say Modern sure. Romance, like one yeah. of the great movies about fear of commitment. I also think that for some reason, maybe just because Martin Short has been in the discourse, Clifford is like just one of the great films about like fear of like little children, yeah. <laughs> especially if they're like grown men like Martin Short. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah. I think that that movie is about fear, you know. Sure, um, definitely. So we can say that. I think Clifford, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Clifford. And I guess a fear movie, it's funny, you guys texted the image of fear.com. <laughs> I haven't seen that, and I really want to. So that'll be oh. my fear thing that I... Have you guys Please seen watch. that movie? 
Uh, you haven't seen Fear.com? I've seen no, Fear.com, yeah. Oh, yeah. I would watch Fear by James Foley first, but that's just me. Sure, yeah. sure. I mean, Fear.com is, it's it's kind of like, you know, Hollywood's attempt at doing a, a Kyoshi Kurosawa Pulse. movie. <laughs> yeah. You know? Doing so like, Pulse or whatever. Yeah, it's like, it's like Hollywood's attempt at doing Pulse. And I know Except Hollywood did, did a specific, <laughs> a, a, you know, Hollywood remake of Pulse. But it's got that same kind of like, you know, that energy when Japanese horror was all the rage and Hollywood was trying to to figure out how to how to create those those movies or capitalize on them. But you know. But yeah, yeah, thank you for scaring me. <clears throat> uh Boo. You, you dished up what I was looking for. But Marsh, you you have the topic next week. Maybe I can frighten you with my pick in some perverse way. What is the what's the theme? You certainly can. Um this last week, I had the pleasure of watching uh, Miss Me Yet, the uh, Chris Bell series about the Bush years, a televisual archival history uh, of those years. And uh, my whole life flashed before my eyes uh, several times. You know, this is, of course, uh, a very formative time in, in my life. And so that's what I was thinking. Uh I want you to bring me films from the Bush years. And I don't care if the films have anything to do with Bush or politics. Just do anything you want, 2001 to 2008. Uh, it's a period of film that I feel like uh, these days I very much neglect, you know? Because uh, I was uh, a cinephile then, so I feel like, you know, I have very strong feelings. I was like in film school for some of those years, so I don't know. It's just a weird period that I'm like, I shudder to think about early 2000s to mid 2000s cinema sometimes and uh, surprise me, you know? Bring me whatever you want from the Bush years. I think fear.com comes from <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, that counts. Yeah, yeah, I was going <laughs> to say. <laughs> Hopefully we'll end the episode thinking, mission accomplished. <laughs> As always, you can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple, and other uh, podcast dealers. You can send us emails at Marsh's Mailbag at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. There is no enemy here.
Who said that? Sir, Who told you that? 